The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Close your eyes and imagine yourself standing on board the Mary Rose. The wind filling its sails as it heads out to meet its fate in that final battle of 1545. The men are clambering up the rigging and swiftly carrying their armaments into position. The carpenter and surgeon are prepared to patch up problems as the captain barks his orders. And soon enough, the gunners are at their station, ready to face their enemy. But in all this chaos, how do you picture these men? How old are they? Do they seem healthy? Or perhaps they have noticeable injuries? How tall are they? And if you look into their faces, what do you see? I'm Emily Briffitt, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heat of naval battle to the manoeuvres of royal politicking and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. In this episode, I'll be introducing you to some of the men who served on board the Mary Rose as we investigate what secrets their bones have held for almost four and a half centuries. After all, the story of the Mary Rose is more than just one of battles, guns and shipwrecks. It's also about those who lived, fought and died on board. In the decades since the ship's discovery, cutting-edge scientific studies conducted on remains found on board have helped build up a picture of who these men were. And there may be a couple of surprises in store. Helping us with our investigations are Hannah Matthews, curator at the Mary Rose Trust, and Dr Alex Hildred, the Mary Rose's current head of research and curator of ordnance. Alex also was, until recently, curator of human remains. To start us off, I spoke to historian Dr Onyeka Nubia. When, of course, the Mary Rose was raised, there was considerable interest in this. I remember watching, actually, on TV and being glued to it. And the important thing was that people wanted to know more, not only about the Mary Rose uh, and, and its crew, but hoped that the Mary Rose and the crew might provide us with an indication about Tudor society, might help us to understand more about Tudor society. If we could find out who the people were who sailed on the Mary Rose, we might have a better understanding of mid-16th century English society. So investigations began on the crew of the Mary Rose, and these investigations revealed thousands of bones through meticulous work over many, many decades, it then became possible 
to try and work out who these people were, what their professions were on the ships. Were they archers? Were they soldiers? Were they sailors? Were they navigators? Were they part of the aristocracy or the lower classes? And it became possible to work out, in many cases, what was their ethnicity? Where were they born? Were they born in, in a different part of England uh, other than the, um, the southeast? Or were they born in places outside of England altogether? With no surviving crew lists, many of the men of the Mary Rose remain nameless. We only know the names of three men. Vice Admiral Sir George Carew, Nye Coop, a possible cook whose name was inscribed on a bowl, and Cornishman Roger Grenville, who has previously been called the captain, as well as a master gunner and officer, though the sources are unclear about what his role really was. The historical record tells us hardly anything about the lives or characters of those on board, aside from the fact they served on the famous Tudor warship. But that being said, while the remains of only around 45% of the crew have been found, these do provide us with a rich source about life in the Tudor period and allow us to inch closer to the men who went down with their ship in 1545. And that fact that they all died in one tragic event means that their remains offer us an incredible snapshot into a wide cross-section of naval society and potentially society as a whole at this one moment in time. So what can we learn from looking at these remains? Well, we do know that all crew members recovered were male and most were young adults. It's been suggested that up to 80% of them were under 30 with some being only around 13 years of age. The majority were also somewhere between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 9 in height. And that's not all. Studying the bones can also reveal signs of illness, malnourishment and previous injuries, giving us an invaluable insight into their livelihoods and professions. For example, the fusing of vertebrae may indicate someone was involved in manual work. But before we delve any deeper into what these tests have revealed, I want to explain some of the science behind this testing and what it can tell us. First up, it's isotope analysis. For a quick bit of context, all chemical elements have isotopes and by measuring their ratios in a skeleton's bones and teeth, we can gather information about the individual. Over to Alex. Well, the isotope analysis, basically, you're looking at the chemicals that are absorbed into somebody's gut, basically, and then it went into their teeth because your teeth form, you know, when you're very, very little. And that gives you a profile, a fingerprint of where, depending on the, the what's in the water, the amounts of various elements, carbon, strontium, for example, sulfur, various various compounds. And that can give you an indication, a fingerprint sort of about where they were. Were they in a temperate zone? Were they in a, a hot? Was it cold? What, what was the temperature like? What was the bedrock that the water was taken off and the food, the plants that were ingested as well within the teeth? And that gives you an idea of where they might have come from geographically based on that. It's a best fit 
basically maps that give you isotope plans. Whilst you, you might have quite a detailed profile, there might be several places that could match that, So, and several big places in the world. But then when you go with, with the other evidence you might have, like the sort of food that they ate, was it high animal protein, was it fish protein, was it a land-based plant or one close to the water? And all of those things will, again, feed into it. So you get the best fit, if you like, whereas genetics is far more exact, provided you can extract the DNA and amplify it. Despite being under the sea for almost four and a half centuries, the bones, uncovered by divers including Alex herself, proved to be particularly promising samples for this type of genetic test. The one thing that everybody who's looked at our human bones has said is the condition of them is excellent. And so we weren't surprised when the DNA actually was extracted. And we first did it quite early on as a bit of a test to see whether ancient DNA was possible to do. So this would have been in the 80s. And we did some pig bones and some human bones because most of us didn't wear gloves underwater and you'd handle the objects during the excavation. They didn't go over to the finds bay and you didn't wear gloves there because we didn't. And your hands were wet the whole time you were handling these dirty objects. You'd wash these things off or dirty artifacts. And so we expected a lot of contamination. So it was a bit of a test to see whether the pigs had a lot of human contamination in the, and whether you can get the human DNA and the pig DNA in separate. And we managed to do that, which was good. And at that stage, uh, ancient DNA was not even a science. And now it's just past its 35th year or something. And it's a, you know, a, a big, big science. And so we were sort of at the forefront of testing with that. And similarly, our cattle bones are being used for radiocarbon because they're so perfectly dated. They're using them to calibrate the radiocarbon dates. So our Mary Rose animal bones have actually helped sites around the world with their dating because they are perfectly dated. But we have to be careful with that as well because, you know, we've only got so many thousand of them. (laughs) Now, Alex has already mentioned it, but next up on our list of different testing possibilities is DNA testing. So, What can that tell us? With DNA, you should be able to get things like eye colour, hair colour, profiles of certain conditions, genetic predisposition for it. So, for example, on the one that we've taken DNA from but haven't haven't sampled it, the one thing I did ask is, did he have the fitness gene? Because there is a gene for fitness. And yes, he has got the fitness gene, and it's the one for longevity rather than immediate spurting. It's a sort of longer thing. So that's quite interesting considering he's an, an archer. So things like that you can get with the DNA, but you can't get it with the isotope. During the excavations of the Mary Rose, the bones of 179 individuals were discovered, including 92 fairly complete skeletons. Returning to the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, I was intrigued to find out more about the most complete of these. But this crew member might not look like you expect. I'll give you a clue. He seems to have been a pretty good rat catcher and has affectionately been nicknamed Hatch. Standing in the main gallery, I asked Alex and Hannah to introduce us to this loyal ship's companion. We're looking into the case that uh, we think belonged to the master carpenter and this small dog was just outside the door to the carpenter's cabin. And I think I'm right in saying he's our most complete skeleton, would you say? He is indeed, yeah. So he is the most complete skeleton that we have within the collection. Our most complete human skeleton is probably about 55% complete. Um, But as you can see here, he's he's pretty much complete. He's He's a beautiful example of a dog skeleton. 
I can see here you've also got a picture of what the dog might have looked like. Well, you can see he's got lots of teeth, so we did actually um, take one of his teeth and have DNA uh, analysis done on him, which showed him, I mean, what would you guess as to breed? We thought he was quite tall and thin, so what, what do you think he might Seems be? Seems to be quite a lanky, a lanky fella. We but thought that he might have been a greyhound or a whippet because you see lots of pictures of greyhounds and whippets and they're all very good at it. But genetically, he is almost identical to a Jack Russell. That is the most similar dog. And Jack Russells weren't around at the time. So he's obviously a very long-legged Jack Russell. And we could tell his coat colour, which was a sort of a brindley colour, slightly furry and a, a little bit um, curly. And that he, had, he carried a recessive gene for a condition which is like gout. And it it's often happens in highly bred dogs today, in particular things like Dalmatian. So finding out that we've got, uh, you know, an animal that's carrying that at this particular moment in time just gives you the idea that, that all of these things are really important markers for uh, conditions and that, you know, our skeletons can help understand, the, you know, a dog disease that we thought wasn't, wasn't around at the time. And therefore, you know, what, what else can we get from studying both the human remains and the animal remains? What indeed? Hatch isn't the only skeleton on display at the museum. Whilst wandering around the galleries, we came across another fascinating figure. Human this time. And there was more to him than I expected. Because this man's bones had revealed an interesting clue about his profession. And his appearance. So we're looking at here at a skeleton... But we're also looking at what seems to be a model of said skeleton with clothing and hair and skin and all of all there. Can you tell me about this chap? Who is he? So the skeleton we're looking at here is uh, one of the most complete skeletons that we have within the assemblage. And we believe that he was an archer. So we believe his role on board would have been one of the archers. And we think this from looking at his remains, so the skeletal remains, we can tell from marks on the bone, so muscular skeletal markers as they're known, basically the size of his muscles and which muscles he was using predominantly. And arches have very significant signs essentially within the, the shoulder region. Archery is something that at this time boys would be starting from about the age of eight and practicing weekly, so this is, this is a lifelong um, skill that they would have been practicing. And so through that developmental stage, as a child doing this uh, repetitive activity, this is what has really left that indicator on his skeletal remains. And from the skeletal remains, people have been able to reconstruct what he would have looked like. So we can tell the height of him um, and also the facial reconstructions, which are an incredible part of the, the story here at the Mary Rose Museum, which... Alex, you were involved in with the artist and the forensic scientist who did that. That's right. He's a forensic scientist who works uh, in Sweden. He did all the Vasa reconstructions, and we sent him printouts of skulls. So we scanned the skulls and did photogrammetry on it. Then we sent him printouts, and he built up in the old-fashioned way, rather than just by computer, all of the muscles based on, as you say, the scars that are left on the face um, so that you can get an idea of the facial reconstruction. And that's what we have next to him, the reconstruction of the face. It's not only science that the team at the Mary Rose have drawn on for their reconstructions, but art too. You might remember that in previous episodes we talked about an artwork called the Cowdery Engraving. 
which offered up some clues on what happened during the Battle of the Solent. But as it turns out, the Cowdery engraving has also helped experts build up a picture of what the men on board might have looked like. One thing that we can't tell, you're pretty fine about what we think the face would have looked like, but the hair colour, which actually, and the shape of the hair, and the eye colour, those are all quite important things and you can change quite dramatically with that. So with that, with all of the nine individuals that we we have special cases for here, we just looked at the Cowdray engraving, which is this huge engraving of South Sea Common, in 1545 with people of all sorts having parties and the, the people that you've got the uh, archers who are c- collating so you've got bits of Henry VIII's army there and Henry VIII's there on a, on a horse there's all of his entourage and there are also general people uh, in there as well so we just looked at the coloration of the people and the beards and the shape of them and just picked them randomly and said well let, we'll give him red hair and we'll give him a beard and we will but we based it on the cowdrey engraving so although we're pretty sure that the facial reconstructions are the same you can you know change a lot with eye color and hair color so until you do the, the dna for example we, we can never be sure and while the science has come on leaps and bounds in recent decades that's not quite the end of the story Alex explained her hopes for the future of analysing the bones. We're doing different forms of scanning of the bones in order to look at bone mineral density, etc. So that, again, informs you about diet and strength and all sorts of things. And, and, you know, can you get fingerprints of that sort of thing? So, for example, we we had um, Raman spectroscopy done on individuals that looked as though they got physical characteristics of vitamin C and vitamin D deficiency and came up with, with completely different patterns within the chemistry, which then can be looked at with modern people to see whether it's the same and whether or not you can then look at early stages, for example, of this by doing chemistry rather than anything else. Just a quick scientific side note here. Raman spectroscopy is a non-destructive analysis technique which reveals a molecule's structural fingerprints by using a high-intensity laser light source to show how a molecule scatters. Anyway, Back to Alex. So our bones, provided it's non-destructive, we do try and use them in a way that might help with with both medicine as well. But, But one of the biggest potential things is the calculus within the teeth. So these tutors didn't brush their teeth that well, not as well, they didn't have the nice toothbrushes that take all of our calculus off. So their calculus is is really quite hard and and quite available. And that, you know, to destroy a bit of calculus is nowhere near as bad as destroying another tooth. And that will give you a reflection of your oral microbiota, which again is a reflection of your gut microbiota. And then you're getting, if you do 179 of them, you're looking at the gut bacteria of a population. And that, again, can inform on, on all sorts of conditions, diseases. Do these people have wheat intolerance? You know, all sorts of questions that you can ask and potentially be informed quite adequate with a big number of people who all died at the same time. So that, you know, that's, it's a really important resource. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. 
Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Now, hold on one moment. Let's not run away with ourselves by looking too far into the future. Let's return to what testing has already taken place. Alex explains. The sort of testing that we've done on the crew, unfortunately, still at the moment, a lot of it is destructive. So if you're wanting to get isotope analysis to work out perhaps where people are born or what sort of food they ate when they were growing up or what sort of food that they ate later in life because your your ribs keep growing so you can use those to look at food later on. You're having to sacrifice something. You have to take a sample and for the best samples, both for DNA analysis and for isotopes at the moment is the, the teeth or there's a petrous bone in the skull, which is also quite good, but that's quite deeply buried and would, you know, would be quite dramatic to get out. So we look at teeth. Now, A lot of the teeth were lost. Some of them were decayed during life. Uh, Other ones seem to have disappeared either during the excavation. You can see that that you've got very clean holes that are sort of brand new, if you like. So the teeth of some have gone. And a lot of them don't have, you know, even half of their teeth. Some of them have got very, very few. So we have to be very careful about using them. And so with that, although we could have found fantastic things out by doing DNA on, we've got 179 skulls, we could have done, you know, if we take one tooth from each of them, potentially, depending on how good the the DNA is, you've got DNA from from a group of 179 Tudor individuals who can tell you you so much, you know, colour of hair, if you've got genomic DNA type of hair, what sort of recessive diseases they might have been carrying, for example, which we found out with the dog, which is that the DNA on the dog was the first really successful DNA that we did because we got genomic from both parents and uh, were able to, to tell a lot from the dog. So we'd be very careful about the use of that. And we've only actually done DNA on one individual so far. We, well, we've, ta- we've taken DNA from two. One has been completely processed. And that's a, a chap that we call Henry. And he was called that by the young lady who was excavating him at the time. So we decided we keep, you know, she's her buddy Henry. And uh, he's had black spot on his skull, which is probably some iron or something that was close to it. And so she became very fond of him. So we've called him Henry. Anyway, it transpires his father came from North Africa and probably his mother as well. And so we know a fair amount about him because of that. And we took DNA from another person who we think was foreign as well. And the isotopes actually suggested that 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 was the case. But we haven't processed that completely. So we're waiting for that because A, it's expensive and B, you know, you don't want to do it. The longer you wait, the more chance you have of, of getting more information without so much destruction. Not only did Henry's teeth show that he was a teenager with a taste for sweet, sticky treats, the shape of his skull also suggested he was of African descent. And as it turned out, Henry's DNA was proven to be genetically similar to modern-day people from the Near East, Moroccans or Mozabite Berbers of Algeria. The isotope analysis we did for looking at where people might have been born by the sort of water that they they ingested when they were young or the foods that they ate was done on another eight individuals. So, and that again was a tooth, you know, being lost. Well, in fact, in some cases, it's two teeth being lost for each one of those. So you have to be careful. And that was prompted by a television program. And so to a certain extent, because we had the money available to do that, we chose to do it on the characters that are our lead people around the museum. So there's some individuals who, because of where they were found, so for example, the cook who was found in the galley or uh, a carpenter who was found with a whole load of carpentry equipment just below the cabin, there wasn't a carpenter within the cabin. We've been able to say, we think they might be the carpenter, we think they might be the cook, we think they might be the master gunner because of what they were found or 
within some instances, we just say a gentleman or a, uh, a foreigner, perhaps a foreign gentleman because of what he had in his pouch. And again, he was somebody who, when we did the isotopes analysis, it, it's likely that he did come from somewhere in the Mediterranean. And there was a little casket panel that was only made in, in, in northern Italy in the 1420s. And it was there at a tiny little panel with two angels holding flaming candles in his pouch in a chest um, beside him. So it's those individuals in particular whose stories we tell in the museum because of the objects that that we found uh, close to them or the places they were found that we chose first to to look at during the scientific analysis. So then that transpired that, that there were four people who were likely to have either been foreign or parents foreign. I wanted to pick up on something that Alex mentioned earlier that not everyone on board this English warship had European ancestry. This is something I explored in more depth with Onyeka Nubia. We are emotionally attached to an idea of Englishness that isn't necessarily rooted in the evidence of that Englishness, but is strongly predicated on the idea of us wanting England uh, to be that way. The idea is that Because this mythology that we have about England and Englishness infects all of our research that we do, we sometimes overlay this mythology on the evidence, on the history. And this also means that when we're investigating moments in time, or in this case, an archaeological site, we overlay our perceptions of what we think the Tudor period was. And... According to Onyeka, these preconceptions have inevitably shaped ideas about what the Tudor Navy may have looked like. Hitherto, the idea had been postulated that they would be, inverted commas, hearts of oak, as the phrase goes. You know, the salt of the earth, the very best of Englishness, the the epitome of the ideal of Englishness. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, people might say Anglo-Saxon descended, English archetypically stereotypical perceptions of Englishness that that support a sort of notion of a monolithic white Englishness stretching sort of over 2,000 years. And that the Mary Rose would provide a 16th century indication of that sort of monolithic Englishness. So shock horror with investigations that have been taking place from 1982 till now, that this was not the case. Among many other fascinating finds, these in-depth investigations made several especially notable discoveries. Out of the limited number of skeletons who underwent isotope analysis, it was found that four of these men were non-English born, with an additional person being second generation English born. Alex explains why this may have been the case. There are indications of multinational crews on ships at this period, but it's more, you don't get the profile of how many, you know, it's noted that you have got some, even some French gunners or some Flemish gunners that are listed on, you know, that that you've got so many Flemings on the boat or on a ship at the time. But I don't think we'd expected the profile to be nearly half and half. Now, whether that will transpire if we do the the rest of them, we don't know. But it certainly is, I think we were all quite surprised that the crew was so, especially that some of these people were archers and you think, oh, yes, maybe he's foreign, maybe he's a Welsh archer. But, you know, to find the, to find a, an archer that could be from North Africa was not expected. But perhaps that's our own naivety. And we 
you know, you think of the British Navy as being British, but, you know, it, it hasn't and it isn't and it wasn't. And when you dig back into the historical record, as Onyeka reveals, finds that at first seem surprising begin to make more sense. This shouldn't come as such a shock or a surprise, especially since the Mary Rose herself was involved in a number of escapades prior to 1545. One of them involved taking on a Spanish ship and then press ganging uh, several hundred of that Spanish crew into its own crew. So it is not surprising, in fact, that, that we would find Spanish um, sailors uh, amongst the crew, especially also because England was in alliance with the Venetian states, with the Pope, uh, with the Holy Roman Empire. So it is not surprising, therefore, that the Allies would also have peopled that ship. As we explored earlier in the series, the Mary Rose was embroiled in a series of military engagements known as the Italian Wars. This back and forth between European powers saw England switch sides between the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the French King Francis I. It was a complex conflict, characterised by shifting European alliances. So, it makes sense that there were a range of European crew members on board. But what about those from further afield? I think in about uh, 2016, 2015, skeletons were examined in detail. At least two of them could be described as being of African descent. And most interestingly, one of them, uh, which has been uh, nicknamed Henry, was not only of African descent, but almost certainly was second generation English born. So he was English born, but of African descent. Now, to find even one person of African descent would come as a shock to many people. But to find two, some would regard that as being, you know, impossible, you know, that that, that could take place. And many people were genuinely surprised and shocked that that was the case, that there were, you know, these two people of African descent. Moreover, that one of them was English born, but still of African descent. This is a, a, a immense confusion to many people. It may have been that it just happened. They picked the only two people of African descent on the whole ship. I don't think that's likely, but it's possible. But the point was that there were these two. And the point was that this crew included a large number of people who were not English born. So what exactly does this evidence tell us? First of all, it tells us that the crew of the Mary Rose was ethnically diverse. They included Spaniards, Portuguese, Venetians, North Africa, uh, African English born, but with North and West African heritage. And it included, as far as we can tell, people from other designations too. So there may have been individuals from there who were on the May Rose as well. So this is an interesting thing because, although we cannot say to what extent, we certainly can say that there was a large non-English born contingent and there was a presence of people of African descent. So that leads us to the question, is the Mary Rose an aberration or does the composition of the crew reflect the diversity of English society as a whole? Tudor society from 1485 to 1603 has been postulated as a mono-ethnic white 
Christian society. Moreover, not only has the mythology of Tudor society been propagated in that way, but our ideas of diversity are mostly ideas that are rooted in modernism post-1948, you know, Empire, Windrush and, uh, and all of that. England wasn't monoethnically white, but that's certainly where the evidence is pointing. What evidence am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the evidence written by English men at the time in their English parishes. These English men sometimes recorded a note about the ethnicity of the people that they baptised, married and buried. There is a problem, though. These records become more consistent, more expansive after 1553 and after 1558. So this is the important caveat, because some historians erroneously have said People of African descent suddenly started arriving in 1558 in England. There isn't evidence to support that. What all these records do do, that means the records written after 1495, the records written after 1553, the records written after 1558, all these records reveal that there were people of African descent in England. These parish records as sketchy as sometimes they are, as partial as sometimes they are, nevertheless, do provide indications of people of African descent living in various parts of England. They are shown living in English parishes and living with their white English counterparts and often marrying and having relationships with their white English counterparts and having children with their white English counterparts across the country. And from evidence like this, a more diverse and varied picture of black lives in Tudor England emerges. There are three documents written at the end of the 16th century, sort of 50 years after the sinking of the Mary Rose. In 1596 and 1597, and uh, 1601. The first letter is written on the 11th of July, 1596, and it is a letter, if we can call it that, in which people of African descent are described as, number one, living in England, number two, being populous, and number three, of a desire to deport at least 10 of them. A second letter was written on the 18th of July, 1596, which talks about a wider population. Then there is a third document, a draft proclamation written in 1601, which talks about people of African descent being a problem, being uh, powered and fostered, is the term uh, that's used in, in the document, in England, that they are not Christian and that they should be deported from the country, describing the population as being great in number. Okay, so these three documents are the most quoted documents regarding people of African descent in England, which then sort of leads to the summation that the Africans that were in England were recent arrivals, servile or or enslaved, and perhaps that they could be deported and perhaps that they were deported, and that therefore 
those Africans that were on the Mary Rose perhaps were part of that same sort of population, an inferior, servile population that were enslaved and were treated badly, and most of whom would have been deported at some point. However, this wasn't quite the case. A more cursory investigation, we discover another series of documents. These are petitions, petitions that prove that the first letter, the second letter and the proclamation were not successful. They did not result in the deportation of a single person. Not only that, but there was resistance to the implementation of these sorts of activities. And uh, these petitions prove that there wasn't wholesale, or in fact, probably any kind of mainstream support uh, for the later sort of ideas that lay behind these documents. As we are coming up to the end of this episode, I thought it would be fitting to end with a story that ties all of this back to where we started. The Mary Rose. Almost as soon as the ship had had sunk, there were calls to raise the Mary Rose. In the 16th century, individuals were engaged, companies were engaged to raise the Mary Rose. Those companies failed for the most part. Uh, And it's in the midst of, of this, a Venetian was employed called Peter Paolo Corso. This Venetian, and this is the important part, was internationally known for working in this trade. His employees were also internationally known. Amongst his crew as a head diver uh, was Jack Francois. Jack Francois was an African man, probably um, from the island of Arguin in modern-day Mauritania. He was employed perhaps with two other African divers, one by the name of Ito and another by the name of George Black. This crew, under the direction of Jacques Francois, were employed to retrieve precious metal instruments and other valuable ordinances from the Mary Rose, which they did. However, they were given authority to expand their um, investigations into another region called the Needles. Whilst working in the Needles, they began to recover tin and lead from other wreckages, uh, either in the Solent or in the Needles. It was in the course of this other recovery that uh, Peter uh, Paul Corso was accused of stealing, of theft. And this is where um, uh, the evidence is helpful for us. And in the testimony in the court, Jacques Francois was called as a witness. And when called as a witness, his credentials were explored in the court. And the question of whether he could give valid testimony was also examined in the court. The prosecution claimed that he was enslaved. And therefore, as an enslaved person, his testimony had no validity. He claimed that he was a familius and that he was part of effectively Pierre Polo Corso's extended family as an employee. Moreover, he explained that he was a head diver and that he had an experience of working in these ventures. His testimony was allowed. uh, So there is the presumption 
therefore, that the attempt to discredit him uh, based on the erroneous notion of him being enslaved was not upheld. So this is a fascinating thing because it explains how not only does the composition of the Mary Rose tell us something about diversity, but the events surrounding the raising of the Mary Rose also provide us with an indication about diversity, not only within England, but also within Western Europe as well. These people were part and parcel of early modern English society. They were part and parcel of the parishes and the communities in which they lived in. And their descendants, many of their descendants, are alive today. This is part of English history. Tune in again next time when we'll be turning back to the moment the Mary Rose was raised, following its progress and preservation right up to the modern day. We'll be exploring how this Tudor time capsule still continues to be an invaluable historical resource today. Thanks for listening, and many thanks to Hannah Matthews, Dr Alex Hildred and Dr Onyeka Nubia for being my experts for today's episode. This podcast series was written and edited by me, Emily Briffitt, and produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Ellie Cawthorn and Daniel Adamson.